This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. We're recording on Thursday, April 21st, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill here with Rebecca Shinsky coming to you from bookriot.com, which I guess is obvious in the name of the (laughs) show. We are now T-minus nine days from, according to the publishing industry, the start of summer. Um, And the, the best herald of the start of the summer reading season is our summer preview draft, which you can get and listen to if you're a Book Riot podcast Patreon member, subscriber. I'm not sure what, I guess, subscriber, supporter. Patron, Patron. Um, that's a tequila, not a person. Um, Patron. Uh, so you can go check it out there. We had a really good time recording it. A fascinating reading season to come up. Um, and we're, you know, so today we're recording the next special thing that's going to go in the in the in the Patreon feed. Are we going to tell people ahead of time or at, like as a as a patron? I think I would like to be surprised that something shows oh, up there and they don't know okay. what's going to be. What do you think about this, Rebecca? I am just fine with letting what appears in the feed be a surprise and then yeah. we can let folks here know what's available to them if they decide mm-hmm. uh, to join us over there with all the folks that have already joined because once you do join, the backlist becomes available right. to you as well. Um, folks are already starting to vote, Jeff, and I won't, I won't spoil don't, which don't way the vote is going. Don't poison the water. Going. I'm yeah, not going right. to poison the water. You know I believe mm-hmm. in a democratic process by the internet. Uh, but I will say interesting single-issue voters on both sides. We're getting that data. We, we asked explicitly. One of our mistakes in the last... Um, preview draft was it was easier to vote. You didn't have to email, but it was, there was no text field, so it was it was um, I guess more like regular voting where you don't explain why you're voting for this candidate versus that. But it was one of the things we thought we learned um, was that there are single single volume voters out there, and that seems to be. Is, are you saying that's bearing up? Is it people are yes, deciding yeah, based there, on one or there two There are books? a couple. There mm. are some of the votes for me and some of the votes for you that are cited as being tied directly to one or two of the titles that each of us chose. Okay. All right. Well, now, see, now I'm intrigued by knowing a little bit. By not knowing anything, I could pretend it wasn't happening. <laughs> Gotta leave them uh, wanting more. Voting. Yeah, I, we haven't talk, I guess we'll leave voting open for May. There's no reason yeah. to close it down yeah. as people are listening and deciding to subscribe for the first time. Um, let's see. We've got some feedback to do. Uh, I'm not going to say what the next bonus thing that's coming in the feed. When's the, when's the next one going to happen? Tuesday. For those of you? Tuesday. They're getting another special thing. In the feed there. If you missed it last week, you can hear the opening to When the Corn is Waist High by Jeremy Scott after the show. Special thing we're trying. At the end of the show, there's an excerpt. Check out that book there. Ah, listener feedback. I, I think I have to do the break first. All this could all this could be longer than oh, um, okay. the pre-break part I'm of it. Ready. So let's do let's do our break. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. 
This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Listener feedback. A couple of emails um, from folks about our surprise at the shrink wrapping of uh, Atlas of the Heart. That's not a sentence I thought I would say. Um, (laughs) I guess it's more common than we as the end buyer browsing the table um, might experience. It makes sense if it's, you know, if it's got inserts, loose leaf, um, it's oversized. Sure. It keeps the, it keeps it high and tight, as we like to say okay. in the industry, if you shrink wrap the book. So I think the, the thing that struck um, me was the shrink wrapping going all the way to the consumer at the end point, right? Mm-hmm. So that it was, un, un, it was browsable but unflippable. And that seemed to me a key feature of whether or not you should pick this up. And the shrink wrapping element to me thought it was bought, being bought more like a commodity than someone actually deciding whether they want to, that's a thing. I want to buy it. I don't even need to look at it uh, in order to buy it there. But apparently it's more common. Maybe this is a weird case of for some reason it's just getting left on accidentally indicates uh, sound and sound and shrink wrapping indicating nothing. <laughs> okay. um, Atomic Habits. We talked about book sales of the year so yes. far. Atomic Habits is the number one selling book of the year. And one of the things we said there is, isn't it interesting that it's outsold some of the big TikTok hits, even though it's not a TikTok thing? It is a TikTok thing, apparently. <laughs> Had a couple of people write in to say, Should have known. Um, very carefully and very gently, thank you for my feelings. My feelings, thank you. It's like, yeah, actually, this did make the rounds. And in, in thinking about our conversation there, it's like a 28 title, 28 title. Why all of a sudden is it now? And I think our now prior, Rebecca, has to be if something all of a sudden now is it, it's a TikTok thing. Um, that makes sense. I can adapt this or adopt it into my mental model right. for what's going on with this book. It sounds like this one, though, is not a book talk element. It's just the wider people out there on TikTok and, mm. you know, the pros and professional development and biz talk. this changed my life. Yeah, biz, I don't know, <laughs> self, self-deaf talk. Um, so it's coming in a little bit sideways. So in what we what trickles up or down or wherever we are uh, in the waterfall here, 
it wasn't coming through the book talk talk. It was people are buying this, but they're seeing it in relation to other kind of. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. Um, that's a tough uh, audio experience. It's one where you actually see the words. It's it's not confusing at all. But when you say it, so that was a really fascinating one to see. I th- I thought I had something else to say about that. I, you know, w- the big story of the week and. Um, the New York Times has had a couple of recent really good pieces. I've talked about this before. You and I have talked about this before. The feature writing about books on the, on the mm-hmm. New York Times is different than it's been, in, yes. as I can remember it. We got a couple more this week. There's this one, Bards and Noble went from Villain to Hero. There, then there was a piece today that I didn't have time, and I didn't think you'd seen it, about like um, the basically the the experience, trend, habit, industry around books as decoration. Um <gasps> Oh, no, uh, I haven't writ seen large. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we'll get around to that next week. But we could spend a whole episode on this Barnes & Noble piece in the Times. Do you want to do that now or you want to wait? I think we should wait because okay. it's interesting, but there's not like a whole lot of new stuff to it. So I think that yeah. we could talk about it. Hard disagree, lot. but we can talk about it. <laughs> I've got takes. There's so much of this, Rebecca, happening right now. We could make it our whole podcast feed. I must admit that we've been talking about book bannings and getting stuff pulled off curriculums for so long. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything new to say about any of this, really. It's getting worse, more yeah. brazen, and more widespread. Um, those are all bad things. Um, are they much... Is it really philosophically any different than what we've seen before? I don't think so. It's just that, as I think I said on last week's show, that... Republicans and a certain kind of conservative person have realized and fully grokked how soft of a target public school libraries and public libraries and mm-hmm. reading lists actually are. Um, and I think the other thing that's maybe, it's not good, but it's a it's because of something that's good, is that teachers and librarians and reading list developers and syllabi makers and... Um, people who buy the books on the shelves have done an impressive job over the last five years getting new books that conservative folks are going to um, object to, right? I mean, I was looking at these lists of what books are being banned. This stuff wasn't on bookshelves at all. It wasn't even available 10 years ago to be banned. I think that's the thing that's remarkable to me is like, Mm -hmm. you look at the top 58 books, I saw a list recently of things that are being banned in Florida, right? 30 of them are explicitly about LBTQ books for kids and teens, about non-binary gender stuff. And there were like two or three ones that we that you can fill a list like this that shows up in libraries is a remarkable testament to that's yes. worked and been yeah. by all kinds of people. And I'm so sad and angry that now it's going to be defense and pulling and pushback and fighting over these things. So much work has gone in to making these books available for kids who need them that will save their lives in many cases, save mm-hmm. their mental health over many years. Um, and this only hurts libraries. This does nothing good for anyone. And it's very sad to do. And it's going to take people pushing back in their localities. And there's nothing else for it. I'm not sure what else to say, Rebecca. What do you want to add to that, if any? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's all right. And I share all of those feelings and opinions about it. And you know, I think this is 
it's the right framework to think about. This is a response to progress and a response to growth in these areas. You had like the 60s and 70s represented a certain type of political progress. And then we had Reaganism. And then Mm -hmm. we moved into the early 2000s and had our first black president for eight years and had a lot of progress in both racial and sexual equality. You know, there's certainly a lot of work to do um, remaining, but made a lot of meaningful progress, a lot of high profile progress. And this is part of the backlash to that. The Trump era was part of the backlash to that. This is continued response to the world is changing in a direction that I don't like. And so let me fight back against it. And you're absolutely right. It's the drum we're going to keep beating that those of us who want the world to keep changing in this direction have to be just as invested in this fight as the people who are trying to stop progress from occurring. I think the the notable piece this week was that the book banning has stretched into math textbooks, mm-hmm. um, that this is not just about protecting the children from a book about gay characters or something that acknowledges, you know, the humanity of a trans person or, or something like that, but even just references, like small references in like word problems um, are being you know, used as reasons to get rid of textbooks. Um, 41% of the math textbooks that were submitted for review in Florida schools have been rejected, either for not meeting some of the new standards or for including, quote unquote, prohibited topics like critical race theory and social emotional learning. That level of brazenness of and and that level i think this really speaks to how fearful folks on the right are of these things that you are willing to like to ban a math textbook because and i don't know what the specific examples were here but to ban a math textbook because of like what one line in a word problem mentions that to me is an indication that you know your argument is weak Mm -hmm. and that it doesn't stand up to scrutiny if you if you can't subject it to a little exposure to the other side um that's i think we're just going to continue seeing more of these a lot of it is because it plays well in pr rolling into the midterms so the the next six months Mm -hmm. are going to be a journey um with these kinds of things but this needs to just be a a galvanizing call to action um for folks on the left um and even i think very many moderates um i don't think you need to be as left-leaning as like you or I are to find a lot of things to be worried about with these efforts to remove books from schools, particularly when you're not even talking about real, like there's, I will eat my shorts if there's an actual reference to critical race theory in a Florida elementary school math textbook. It would be awesome if there were though. I (laughs) have to admit, I mean, I I would welcome that very much. It's, it's interesting too, because this, this polls very badly. Um, for Mm -hmm. Republicans especially. This is one of those issues that a piece of the edge really, really cares about. I think it's because they don't want gay people to exist, I guess. They don't want non-binary people to exist. And they can't do anything really about their existence and flourishing in the world and their increasing representation and participation in the cultural discourse of American life, all of which are good life-affirming things. But this is what they can do. They can find a weak spot in how our schools are put together, how our country is put together, um, and where public librarians and teachers have a lot on their plates. They're not paid particularly well. They have a hard enough job getting through the day. And it's very hard to expect and ask them to have the energy to expend the energy to come at people that are coming with, with screeching wheels at them 
for their jobs and life. Like we've seen people get fired. Um, we've seen mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. There's legislation coming up now about you could sue a teacher or librarians or press charges for these things. It's not the teacher's job to to man, staff the battlements of culture here. Um, they've got enough to do to get through the day. So it's going to be for the rest of us in our local in our local positions um, to vote and give money and do other things that we can. And we have we've seen you know when one side rises, the other side does. That's what's happening here. I think a couple of interesting tools to have at your disposal as, as an interested listener who wants to, to care about this. Um, one, Danica Ellis wrote for us a story last week about the Brooklyn Public Library um, yes. giving free, making free e-lending cards available from the Brooklyn Public Library. I'm sorry, did I say New York Public Library? Brooklyn Public Library. They are they actually different mm-hmm. systems, um, which will give any 13 to 21-year-old in the U.S., Access to the BPL's digital resources, 350,000 ebooks and 200,000 audiobooks. Now, caveat, of course, is you need to be able to have some way to look at this stuff, right? You need some sort of technology there. Um, but you can go get one, get one for someone like this. In the Brooklyn Public Library, I will tell you this it's one of the strongholds of intellectual freedom um, in this world, I would say. And I've used it a lot myself. There, it's, a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful institution. And if you know someone who could benefit from this, please go do this. Um, here's the statement from Linda E. Johnson. I'll read it real quick. Mm-hmm. President of Brooklyn Library, Public Library. Access to information is the great promise upon which public libraries were founded. We cannot sit idly by while books rejected by a few are removed from the library shelves for all. Books Unbanned, that's the name of this project, will act as an antidote to censorship, offering teens and young adults across the country unlimited access to our extensive collection of ebooks and audiobooks, including those which may be banned in their home libraries. So that's something that the BPL can do. I hope other libraries follow suit. For a long time, I don't know if the NYPL or just the BPL or one of the two, you could get, as any citizen of the country, you could pay a $50 annual fee to access the collection. So they have some extant technology that you don't have to live in, say, Carroll Gardens or the Upper West Side or whatever to access it. They think of themselves, and the NYPL, I think, is very much so a national institution, um, like the New York Times is a national um, publication, the NYPL thinks of itself, and I think it really is, the standard bearer, a standard bearer for American public libraries. And the Brooklyn Public Library um, is certainly like that as well. And I think other people are pivoting. You know, this other story yes. I have here is We Need Diverse Books is offering grants to educators to get the dollars um, to to spend on developing their collections, whatever that looks like, in a library or classroom setting. Um, some of these situations aren't just about, it could be as soft as we're going to cut your budget so you can't buy stuff. Um, that's a way to do this, uh, even even above and beyond the, I'm going to take this particular title off the shelf. But like, if you can get the books into your classrooms, you can get the books into your classrooms. And I think it, that's a very, very wise and self-aware move by We Need Diverse Books part, mm-hmm. because it sort of doesn't matter how many diverse books are published if kids can't that need them can't get them. And there are more books available now than there ever been before. And looking down the supply side, you know, the, the, where the kids can actually get these books, kids and teens and middle grade readers who need this affirmation more than anybody, looking to get the books that exist already into the hands of those kids is now probably more as important as working on the, are there books in the pipeline for the, the kids even to get their hands on? So I think this is very smart. I hadn't thought about this myself of how they could you know, kind of move the ball forward, just like get the titles that are out there into the hands of the kids that could use them. 
Yeah, it's really encouraging to see this movement in publishing be mature enough and still a relatively young Mm -hmm. movement, but mature enough to be looking all along the supply chain of books, as it were, to not just what's in the pipeline to be published, but how do we make sure that we can provide access to these? Um, Just to expand a little bit more on the Brooklyn Public Library details, they're making a selection of the frequently challenged books available with no wait times for all BPL cardholders. And that includes Black Flamingo by um, Dean Atta, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, The 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones, and Lawn Boy by Jonathan Evison, among others. I would assume that they've had to do some interesting uh, purchasing of additional copies of these ebook licenses to be able to make this possible um, for their users. And so uh, monetary investment on behalf uh, that the Brooklyn Library is making on behalf of their readers for this. Um, They're also connecting... Um, any, any of the teens who utilize this special card are going to be connected to the BPL's Intellectual Freedom Teen Council, which provides resources to fight back against censorship and book challenges. So putting kids sort of directly in touch with the movement to maintain access to these things. And there's, there is, as Jeff was saying, information about how teens can apply um, for that card in this piece by Danica Ellis, but they can email booksunbanned at BKLYNlibrary.org, or there's BKLYNfuture on Instagram, which is an account run by teens. Mm. Um, So they'll be messaging their peers. Really cool, which I just didn't know that the Brooklyn Library was doing that, that they had a teen run um, even section uh, of Instagram and stuff going on with the teen council. So cool to have a way to really involve users of this service directly into activism that will hopefully make activism like this less necessary Mm. in the future. Link is always to all the stories we talk about uh, at bookriot.com slash listen. I'm putting this here because I have nothing to say about any of them, but I think it's worth saying even that piece. I always look forward to the list. This is the new, the national book foundation's five under 35 honorees, basically some young writers, to put some shine on. Um, and they're, they're selected by other authors, in this case, Britt Bennett, Chairman Craig, Brian Washington, Elizabeth Kraken, and my thing is getting cut off for my... And, oh, Ramon Alam. Um, I've only heard of one of these writers. Nathan Harris's The Sweetness of Water was a... I don't know, I don't have any sense of sales, but I saw it talked about a lot last summer. I think it was an Oprah pick. Oh, it was an Oprah pick. Mm-hmm. Well, then maybe uh, the, the shine... Already shining for Nathan mm-hmm. Harris here. Um, but always, this is a good list to look at. So it's um, Caleb Nelson, Nathan Harris, Lile, Claire Luchette, and Dantiel Mon- Moniz. Go look at, go find. This is, if I haven't heard of most of these books, I'm guessing most of the people out there, and I'm always looking for this stuff. And here's mm-hmm. the other thing. This is Grove, Hachette, Fantagraphics, Macmillan, Grove. These aren't like tiny European publishers or something. Like these are, you know, these are, if not big five, these are imprints I've heard of. Just goes to show, Rebecca, there are so, so many so books. Many. So many. It's hard to keep track. And I would feel chastened if I didn't know better that, of course, there's some I'm going to heard of. And the reason they pick people like this is so that we'll talk about them. It'll get yes. linked to. Maybe you wouldn't have heard of these books before. Um, I, I always find this an interesting list. As I've, I've said before, I'd always like I would always I would like to see the seven over seventy list as well, um, uh-huh. especially now that I'm lifting I'm listening to little little uh, author named Delia Efron. Ever heard of her? Um, uh-huh. Left on tenth, uh, you know our our mutual affection for the 
um, the the poetry of the heart from the elderly is a shared wheelhouse of art. It really is. But you know, Daily Efron wouldn't make one of these lists. But there's people that have late in life debuts, and I'm always interested in them. I'm interested in yeah. all of this stuff, I guess, as it's... part of it. But I always like to highlight this. If you if you if you if you've read any of these books and love them, shoot me an email podcast. At yes, please do. Let us know. Yeah, I like the how specific this is that you need to have published your debut novel and only your, yes. your debut novel. Yes. Uh, so it's really capturing people early in their careers. And it's a $1,000 prize. So you're right also that this is mostly a publicity effort, um, which I think is wonderful. Gets people's names out there, gets them talked about. The setup of being chosen by past winners, I also think is very mm-hmm. interesting. Um, there's just a lot of, you know, I think fascinating pieces of this and previous honorees that there is a good legacy of what yes. kinds of careers the That's folks who point. win this go on to like, like as you mentioned Britt Bennett has one in the past Equica Emezi, Angela Flournoy, Phil Clay, Valeria Luiselli, Taya Obrecht, Karen Russell, Justin Torres, uh, Claire V. Watkins, Tiffany Yannick and Charles Yu and a lot of those are house favorites here on the mm. Book Riot podcast but also house favorites in, in reading writ large and, and folks who have gone on to have you know very well known and, and big writing careers. I always think the National Book Awards are pretty interesting and this is an, a special thing that they do. I do agree I would love to see something like this that expands the age group or even just acknowledges having your debut work of fiction published yeah. at any age is a remarkable thing that is still very <laughs> unlikely to happen for anybody. <laughs> just the odds are not in anyone's favor. And so having hitting that milestone is an enormous success. Um, it would be interesting to see what other versions of this would look like. I really love the seven over 70 <laughs> idea that it's never too late to get started. No. And I definitely <laughs> understand like part of what's happening here. It's like the MacArthur in, in micro, which is it's seed corn, right? Trying to give a little mm-hmm. extra shine so that they can have a full career and dedicate as much of their time to want to their art making as they can. Whereas if you're over 70, a lot of the row has been hoed. I'm saying at that point, I'm not sure it's going to mean you're going to do a whole much more books for your next 50 years. So, but I would like just from a curation point of view, the seven over <laughs> 70 as well. And that would be the Kent Harris, Delia Efron. Seven over 70. Well, they've aged, but like debuts, that's probably an interesting list. There's one I can, there's one, there's like a fan. I have to come back and do some research another time. Um, but this happens from time to time. It's it's less common in fiction. You write a memoir later, or your celebrity, or whatever. I'm not talking. That's mm-hmm. not what we're talking about here. We're talking yeah, about fiction. Your first novel time. over 65 or something like that um, would be interesting. Okay, we're gonna do a sponsor break, and I want to get into Barnes and Noble uh, stuff for a minute. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eyelin. Shu Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed, and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shu Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shu Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year, and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increasingly more sus when he and Shue barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke and 
who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. So this is a piece in you know the Times increasingly broad-based feature writing about the world of books and reading and publishing. Um, this The premise of this one, I think, is fascinating because we've kind of, I don't know if we've danced around saying it quite like this ourselves. It's by Elizabeth A. Harris, who I've shouted out before as being, you know, one, I, I think her and Alexander Alter are doing more, most of the sort of mm-hmm. beat writing for the industry. We've talked about how, I think even, I don't even remember when this happened, but it, it references something we've talked about before of, the anachronism of 1998's You've Got Mail, where Joe Fox and Fox Books is the big bad, right? right? And real soon after that, interestingly, like in the next three years, Amazon came on the scene and Barnes & Noble was taking body blows and then borders went out of business, bookstores, is everything going to happen? And we've kind of talked about where this Barnes & Noble is neither the big bad, nor is it on life support. It's in this other stage now, right? It's not going out of business. Um, Rebecca and all of your teenage friends are going right at 3.30 to buy all the books. We heard about this, your, your, your yep. stories over there. And they've been rejuvenating some stores. They've closed some stores. They've moved some stuff around. And this piece says that now Barnes & Noble is the, it's kind of positioning Barnes & Noble as the standard bearer for like regular book selling, which I thought was a fast, I thought that was a yeah. fascinating positioning because not just not a villain, but a hero. It's one thing to say it's no longer a villain, but it's a hero now. And I don't think that's necessarily right. Harris says, you know, where once independent booksellers thought of them as big bad, now they don't. But then doesn't quote any independent booksellers to say that? There's Oren Tyker, the former head of the ABA, mm-hmm. saying it's not as bad anymore. Well, Oren hasn't been at the charge of the ABA for several years. I know that because he was unannotated graciously. Right. Um, she does quote one bookseller who's like, I'd rather not have one down the street for me. Like that's that's the that's the the. So I don't know. So this is partially a call. I know we have independent booksellers that listen to the show and they write us often and they tell stuff about shrink wrap and Atomic Habits. Um, I would like to know from independent booksellers that listen, what's your Q rating on Barnes and Noble right now? Uh, and if you don't know what a Q rating is, I don't know what the scale is. But you know what I'm asking. They know what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah. Give me a prose description of like, do you think of them as a fellow traveler? Are they the enemy of the enemy is my friend? Are they, yeah, you know what? If it weren't for Barnes & Noble, the rest of this, it would be, it's the keystone in the the physical book selling well in, in the U.S. And if someone pulled it out, the rest of it was crumbled. Like, what's your sense of it? Because 
I don't actually buy this article. I, I don't. I don't buy the, what they're selling here. What what Harris is selling and what Daunt is selling because we just talked about book sales are up twenty percent over twenty nineteen. Does yeah. that have anything to do with Barnes and Noble doing anything better, or you just got a rising tide? That that's my just, base case here. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it's a rising tide. I think that that what's what has gone on here is really the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and that Barnes and Noble is not the big bad to independent booksellers because now independent booksellers need Barnes and Noble sort of to stand between them and Amazon. That if Barnes and Noble falls, then it's really just independent booksellers versus Amazon. And there's, you know, there's Target and Costco and other big box places that sell books. But Barnes & Noble would be the last dedicated brick and mortar chain um, that uh, in a big sense, you know, and I know that there are other chains, but mm-hmm. Barnes & Noble is the big one. I think that's where I don't know that booksellers would call it a necessary evil. I don't think they perceive Barnes & Noble as an evil. I'm not sure what the sense of what their perception of it is, as you're saying, especially since she doesn't quote a lot of indie booksellers here. I would guess that that sent the sentiment of it would be my preference if there's not one directly down the block from <laughs> right. my independent yes. bookstore. Like, I don't want to compete with Barnes & Noble, but I prefer that Barnes & Noble continues to compete against Amazon <laughs> right. on my behalf, um, would be my guess. I object to uh, the villain hero model of this anyway. Right. <laughs> um, but the idea that just by continuing to exist, um, Barnes & Noble is somehow like saving publishing, I think books would continue to exist and be sold. The market might contract. Um, It might become more difficult for independent booksellers because Amazon could suck up more of the book buying audience. They, as we have established, have access and the ability to discount books in a way that independent booksellers can't afford to. It, It puts the squeeze on indies if Barnes and Noble goes out of business. But I, just, I don't really know that there's much of a story here. Well, I, do, yeah, I think it's I worth know. saying out loud, right. like, remember how, in, like, Amazon is really the story. Mm. Um, you know, it's worth just saying out loud. Remember how we all used to be worried about Joe Fox and his big chain bookstore? And wasn't that quaint <laughs> before, you know, before Amazon came in and, and disrupted everything? But I don't think that Barnes & Noble has done any, I think Barnes & Noble got lucky this year that the teens got into books on TikTok and want to so wander too. into Barnes & Noble after school and pick up their books. And why they're doing that at Barnes & Noble rather than ordering them from Amazon, I would guess, has to do with like they can hop in their cars and go get them. And maybe their parents aren't letting them use credit cards on the Internet yet. <laughs> like, Could be. Or it's a fun. It's an outing. I, I mean, yeah, it's The a same reason outing. we went like, to Barnes & Noble as teens, right. Rebecca. Not for nothing. How many, like, I mean, I was nerdy. How many dates did I go on with a high school boyfriend? to the Barnes & Noble on the plaza in Kansas City. So many. Oh, with <laughs> so the snow many. falling and the lights up in November, yes. December. Get a, it was get a hot chocolate. It's great stuff. It was just as good as like wandering through the Upper West Side hmm. in the fall. Uh, well, to my 18-year-old self, probably. That's um, a great would... point. Barnes & Noble was the Upper West Side to those of us who lived in like suburbs and college yes. towns. That's, that, was, that was the height of teenage sophistication. It wasn't going it was. to the opera or something like that. It was going to get a, a caffeinated, over-sugared ca- beverage, <laughs> right? Yep. That was basically a <laughs> caffeinated liquid Snickers bar. And then going looking at paperback favorites. 
It was. It was like the height of sophistication and romance. Yeah. Was like let's go hold hands and look at hardbound classics and you know talk about the Scarlet Letter. <laughs> So there's a logical chain that I think we're both tapping into. And I don't want, I mean, I think Dante has done some good things and I'll talk about some specifics here, but books were a beneficiary of the pandemic and yes. people are buying more books. And if you were a bookstore, you did better than you would thought would have thought. And Barnes & Noble is the biggest big bookstore chain in America. Ergo, it, it ripped most of the benefits. I think that's a pretty uncontrovertible point of view that doesn't really have much to do with individual actions here. There's the, the great bookstore theory of the world doesn't really hold in that environment. Now, having said that, I think it was true that the Barnes and Nobles were neglected. You know, it was looking kind of shabby. We were still having the same armchairs and topography from 1995. My favorite little anecdote here is about getting rid of co-op. Did you catch that little piece? Yes, I did. I put it on the staff slack and we had a little, Jen and I had a little moment. Well, tell, tell us about the moment then. What was your little okay. moment about it? Well, so for listeners who are unfamiliar with the lingo, co-op is the term that describes the practice by which publishers will pay bookstores, including some independent bookstores, but also largely these big chains like Barnes & Noble, to place specific titles in specific places. And historically, that's been like the big octagon table at the front of Barnes & Noble, the like new in fiction shelf, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, indie bookstores will often get co-op for like featuring a title in their newsletter, that sort of stuff. Uh, and it's a long-standing practice. Um, as we've talked about it on the show over the years, it has surprised folks to find out that when you wander into Barnes & Noble and you look at the paperback favorites table, some of those titles are there, not because they were curated, but because the publisher yep. paid for them to be there. Uh, and that, James Dot notes, they have stopped doing. They have stopped taking money to place titles in high traffic places. And it's like one little nugget in a two-sentence <laughs> thing here where I was like, this is the most interesting thing here. I think it's a big deal. Yeah. He notes that they stopped doing it because it meant that the stores often got stuck with a high volume of particular titles that they weren't going to move um, because of, you know, just the customers in that area weren't interested, but we committed to this and now we got to put 25 of these on this table and they're just going to sit there forever. And when you, when he phrased it that way, I was like, oh, right, that makes sense. Why mm. you wouldn't want to keep, keep doing this anymore. The value proposition of having to actually move those titles meant that they were losing money more than they were gaining from having taken payment for the placements. Um, that was just the moment that Jen and I had was like, this is a big deal. And this is the thing we should be talking about because publishers have relied on that for placement for like, those are the things, the titles at the front of the store where you're most likely to pick stuff up um, were things that they're hoping to have be word of mouth kinds yeah. of hits often end up uh, on those tables. And I would I would pay real American dollars to hear like someone at Penguin Random House talk about how they feel about not being able to pay co-op for Barnes and Noble placement. Like, does it, I mean, the fundamental question is, did it work? I mean, just because the publishers were doing it and Barnes and Noble was allowing it doesn't mean it works. It sounds like it wasn't lucrative enough for Barnes and Noble to continue doing it at the very least. Like their end of the bargain wasn't getting squared up on the publisher side. Were they seeing an ROI on that well, kind of stuff? Or is it just something they did? Inertia like this is very difficult to turn around sometimes. And how would they know? How because they if know? you have, it's that problem of big marketing budgets. If you have a big enough marketing budget to pay co-op for a title to be placed somewhere, you're probably advertising it in all kinds of other places as well. And how they could know that a sale was attributable to this was on the front table. Mm -hmm. At Barnes and Noble is 
very murky to impossible. You'd have to do some sort of like A-B test, right? Like these books mm-hmm. didn't get it and this did and they had a similar yeah. marketing budget and it was deployed slightly differently. And then, and I, I, I don't know, like I think our base case, as we're saying earlier, is we have to, you should now attribute more things to people buying more books. And one of the reasons they're buying more books is because of BookTok, or at least the books they're buying is because of BookTok. And the other piece I thought was interesting here to talk about the different buying patterns. And mm-hmm. I found it to be a little bit of Kremlinology to try to understand what's really changed in the Barnes and Noble buying ecosystem. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the days of, and I can't remember her name. There was a power broker over there. Cecily that, Tinsley. Yeah, Cecily Tinsley. Um, boy, I would I would have loved to have done an annotated about about mm-hmm. her and back in the day, but but would basically make national buys. Like talk about a, a, a king or queen or um, royalty maker for a book. If, if that person or you know at Costco, there's someone similar now, though I don't think they were as ever as um, powerful as the Barnes and Noble was, especially back in the in the Joe Fox days, because with Joe Box, Joe Fox was real and actually ran Barnes and Noble, Rebecca. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean. Like, but those days are are gone, and there's a lot more let's call it decentralized control over book buying. Mm-hmm. A lot of the corporate staff at Barnes & Noble has, has been gutted. They say about half the number of people are on corporate staffs. We also know that the staffs of book buyers and booksellers across the board, remember this was pre-pandemic. There was a lot of like the professional full-time booksellers mm-hmm. at Barnes & Noble's got laid off yeah. in the bad old days. And so there was some cost cutting. There's no, There's no question about that. And being given the gift of free advertising in the form of the tsunami of attention and excitement around books on BookTok, that confluence of COVID-19 and that, I hope they're not saying, look what a great job we've done. Because <laughs> then they're just, they're going to make a mistake. They're going to misattribute yes. success to something else. And I don't know what that really looks like. You know, if they're just like, if you have, if you have teens coming at 3.30 to buy the books, all you got to do is put them out. Because you know what they are, because you see BookTok too. Right. So it's a different kind of hit making. And again, when you see another, we see another lament of there hasn't been a book, big book this year. I'm like, Atomic Habits sold 500,000 copies. <laughs> Colleen Hoover, she's, five of her books are in the top 20 selling 20,000. What do you want? What, what, yeah. what, what do you and, want from it? I don't understand. Well, talk about looking a gift horse in the mouth. I, I can't believe it. And that's just, it's impossible to manufacture or predict. Impossible. You know, like what, what 2022 title is going to be big on TikTok or whatever the thing is four years from now. No. Um, you know, that's, it, you just cannot force it right. to happen. I'm, I'm with you. I'm a little bit concerned that Barnes & Noble is benefiting from the combined good luck of these books went big on TikTok and people read more yes. during the pandemic and attributing it to changes that they have made and um, thinking that it will continue to work. And I guess the inverse of that is the story that's big this week about Netflix losing subscribers for the first time. That's a great point. In you know, in what, like a decade? It's the mm-hmm. first quarter that they've ever lost subscribers. And the, there's all sorts of conversation about it, but I think you can really sum it up as it's a very crowded field, streaming is right now. And people were watching, like Netflix did just fine in the early days of COVID where all any of us could do was sit around and watch Netflix and the content didn't have to be very appealing for it to be appealing enough to be like, well, I can't go anywhere else. So I guess I'll watch Tiger King or whatever. But now Netflix is competing against Apple TV plus and HBO max. Most notably, those two um, are really crowding the field. Hulu is doing very well. And Netflix is doing some like 
well, we have ways to shore this up. We're going to um, have a, an ad supported level that'll be cheaper. And we're going to crack down on people sharing their passcodes. Like that might work for a little while, but it sounds to me like they're not looking at the core problems, yep. the core things that they could do to protect their business against that, uh, against that dip. And I am concerned that we're going to have similar stories about Barnes and Noble, like hopefully a year from now when we're all out in the world, even more than we're able to be right now, which is meaningfully more already than it was two years ago, that like, I hope that some of this attractiveness of books that people refound or discovered for the first time in COVID sticks around. But you can't count on that. We cannot assume that those patterns of, you know, March 2020 are going to hold forever and build businesses around them. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you do? And if there's a dip, can they acknowledge that it's something like, oh, people are outside more, or we're competing against all these other forms of entertainment again, or maybe like something happens with TikTok and the kids stop talking about books and they start talking about something else. Are you ready? (laughs) Is the business still going to be okay? I think the Netflix comparison is super interesting for this reason, which is people aren't, if the TikTok hypothesis is true, people aren't going to Barnes & Noble because it's Barnes & Noble. It's because that's where they can go get um, the Colleen Hoover or the Searcy or whatever, right? And that's just the receptacle. That's that's just the middleman, right? And it's the book itself and then the hype around the book itself that's driving them to go get the thing. Netflix has the same problem. People don't care about Netflix. They care about severance. They care Mm -hmm. about succession. They care about shows. And if you don't got the goods, they don't care. They're going to lose. Not for nothing. Netflix also hiked its price in the last quarter. I didn't see any coverage of that. It's like people, you hike the price, you lose subscribers. It's just going to happen in Russia and everything else. But like, I don't care about Netflix. I also don't care about HBO. I care about Stranger Things and I care mm-hmm. about Pachinko and I care about Hacks when it comes back on May 12th. Yeah. Oh, yes, um, you know, goodness. I care about Atlanta and. I'm going to go seek those things out. And if you don't have the thing, I'm going to cancel the thing. And if you don't have the, the interesting thing about books is that they're omni-channel. You yeah. can get Colleen Hoover in a bunch of different places. What are you doing to protect that's the place you go to get, if Book Talk sticks around, and I'm to the point where I hope it, I mean, I hope it does. I hope this kind of yeah. enthusiasm and I hope it, this, infl- is great. this is great for books. Um, and I hope people read them and continue to buy them. And I would, would, would it kill us to have a few non-white people get the bump and be in the top 20? No, it wouldn't. That's a place I, I would like to see change. Mm-hmm. But what's Barnes & Noble going to do? Or can they just be sit there and, and basically collect rent on book talk enthusiasm? Um, it's not the time for a Barnes & Noble is now a hero. I hope, I hope we're not reading <laughs> our, our press here too much about this. I thought the whole thing was fascinating. And it really crystallized... Some of the stuff that's in the air about, wait, how do we feel about Barnes & Noble now? And what is going on? Did they right the ship? Or did a different hurricane blow them in the direction they should be sailing? <laughs> I'm just not sure <laughs> about that uh, at this particular point. Um, do we want to do front list foyer for a minute? Or let's what do you want to do? Let's do a little. Okay, yeah, you go first. Let's do a little first. front list foyer. Uh, I was traveling over the weekend, so I went looking into my pile of galleys in my iPad, and I read a great little like literary family novel uh, called Marrying the Ketchups by Jennifer Close. Mm. Um, I've, I have enjoyed some of her previous books. She wrote, um, oh, one of them was called The Smart One. Nope, that, that's Rumon Alam. Uh, anyway, look up Jennifer Close. 
(laughs) I'm not Googling it right now. Uh, But Marrying the Ketchups, I think, is coming out April 26th. So by the time you're listening to this show, it will be out or almost out. And it's set in Chicago about a family that own a restaurant. Uh, They are diehard Cubs fans. The patriarch of the family died just before the Cubs won the World Series in 2016. And we get the rotating perspectives of several of the adult children um, and of his widow, uh, both in the aftermath of the 2016 election and then the Cubs winning. And then like one of the daughters moves home from New York and is working back at the family restaurant. And another of the kids has been working at another restaurant, finds himself coming back to the family restaurant. And there's just, you know, the exact type of family drama that you would expect Mm. there to be. I really enjoyed it. I love a like complex family dynamics story. It was perfect. Plain reading, which I think is like this should be a category in the bookstore is like things that are great to read on vacation. And that is the opposite of a pejorative. Like you have to be compelling enough to keep me engaged. Like I got to be interested from page one so that I can tune out all the stuff that's happening around me on the plane. It cannot be like too, it can't be dry. It can't be like too thinky thinky. It it takes real skill to write a book that is well-written and really fun and engaging to read. And I, I really loved it. I thought it was, I thought for what it was, it was really good. Um, Our pal Greg Zimmerman mentioned it on his Instagram as like, if you were a fan of um, the most, I think it was called the most fun we ever had, which is a big family novel a few years ago that this would be a good fit. And I did really like that novel. I think I also read that because of Greg's recommendation. Um, Big shouts to Zimmerman today. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Greg writes a book blog called the, I think he still posts that. Yeah. The new dork review of books. And he was one of the OG book riot contributors. I think he still listens to the show. So thanks for recommending that to me, Greg. Mm. Um, And then I'm almost finished with uh, crying in the bathroom by Erica L. Sanchez, which is an, uh, memoir and essays that comes out in July. It's really fun. Um, I'm listening to Left on Tenth. I'm halfway yes. through. I extend my my evening walk by like 45 minutes to oh. to do it. Everything. How many times have you gotten misty? Well, I was a little more prepared than you were because you didn't read the back. <laughs> I mean, right. shouts to you. <laughs> um, no shots, but shouts to Boldly you. Boldly going. So I knew a little bit more what I was in for. So I was steeled. Um, it's great. I mean, I could listen it's to so it good. forever. I could listen to Delia Efron or Nora Efron narrate their personal literary. Uh, I guess this is more, this is Greenwich Village, not Upper West Side. Um, but it's kind of all in the same ballpark of erudition and personality and a little bit of a sharp elbow, but also some warmth at the same time. Kind of always wanted to be an Efron, I guess it's yes. just the truth of it to some degree. <laughs> Wonderful on audio, heartbreaking, warm. Interesting counterpoint to Heartbreak by Florence mm-hmm, Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not unlike, you know, you, you lose a spouse, you're heartbroken, you're dealing with pain. What do you do? It, it's nice if you fall into your own you've got mail story in the middle of it. It turns out <laughs> that's a nice, that's a nice uh, a balm for the injured and, and grieving and, and um, ailing soul as a word. So I could listen to it forever. I hope it never ends, it's even though so I, know there, I know there are only two hours and 47 minutes less. Not that I'm counting. Um <laughs> I did see of Tranquility in one sitting over the weekend. Oh, okay. It's legit. Number it. Oh, uh, I don't. Mm, I guess we're straddling the seasons. Show title, um, where we now. No, both Egan, both Egan and the Mandel came out in April. I'm sorry, it's still April. Sea mm-hmm. of Tranquility debuted at number two on the hardcover frontless fiction list. Twenty thousand copies, destroying her last nice. The Glass Hotel. 
um, also even really outpacing Station Eleven when the show came out. So Mm -hmm. I think the confluence of the reviews have been very good, and I'll just say deservedly so. It's spec fic. I don't want to spoil it. I think you go in, you like literary fiction, you like speculative fiction. If you're into the to the Station Eleven thing, I think there's a chance this is my most recommendable recommendable book of the year. Right at this Ooh, point, it's my okay. just because it does it does it hits a lot of the quadrants, Rebecca, and you're going to read it, and we're going to I think talk about it in some format in the future. But it's I can see why they chose to adopt it. Oh, that reminds me of a listener email. It's a super juicy one, and they didn't want Ooh. me to. Um, talk about their names except someone okay. who was involved in a tv show and i'll say no more than this we okay. asked about how would if you know how unusual is this to have a durable relationship between a creative team showrunners and an author like a multi-book thing mm. mm-hmm. and and this person said i'm not really sure but i have an experience with an author as being a part of a thing and let me just tell you that this person's behavior if it's anything indicative of what authors are like on the set of a show they really don't actually have any more creative control over you don't want them. <laughs> it did not. It was not a great look. It did not help. It did not say, "I want to sign up for a three book deal to produce more of this person's shows." Very dishy. I appreciate that email to no end. Thank you. You know who you are if you wrote that. I will say no more about it. I will forward it to you, I'm Rebecca. Gonna, I'm going to need all the details. Yeah, I'll, I'll forward it. I meant to forward it to you, but I kind of wanted to have the fun of springing on you without knowing. But you can get the details later. So twenty thousand copies. Uh, Candy House debuted with um, twelve thousand copies. Okay. So selling pretty well. I think C.A.F. Tranquility has legs. As we talked about, Candy House, the the uh, plus one, I read this in recommending to other people, I think is going to be less than one. I think mm-hmm. with C.A.F. Tranquility, people like the book. It, it's, it's very recommendable. It's going to make a really interesting series. I'd be interested to see if Somerville and the team take, do they diverge? Is that like their their move? Like how much are they going to change? It's pretty pretty damn tight, I will say as a okay. book right now. So we'll, you're going to read this, I know, eventually, so I yes. won't say much more about it right now. My last one, I actually read this earlier, and I think I just missed it in wanting to mm. talk about it, but Joan is Okay by Wakey Wang. Her first book was called Chemistry. This oh, I love chemistry. This is a fascinating book. It's more of a character study than anything. The main character is a doctor um, who's, I think, maybe supposed to... Oh, I don't know. My read of that she's on the spectrum in some capacity, though it's never said out loud. It's not the main topic, but written from her point of view and the way she's interacting with people and is picking up on things and not picking up on things suggests maybe that's what's going on. I don't know. That's that, that's more of a interpretation than on the tin. Hmm. But she is the child of Chinese immigrants um, working her fanny off at a, at St. Vincent's, which is the Greenwich Village, the big Greenwich Village hospital. Um trying to make her way in the world, trying to figure out what she wants and who she is. And then COVID happens and how that crystallizes and throws into relief the cracks in her own relationships with her family, um, what she does and doesn't have going on in her personal life. It's a little gem of a literary portrait. And I thought it was an indelible achievement to try to convey a worldview, right? Of this particular mm. person. There's not much plot. You know, it's someone living their life. It's literary fiction in that way. Sometimes people bang on that. But the truth is, that's how most of our lives work, right? Is that there's not mm-hmm. a big story. There's not a big plot. It's just us doing the best we can. And this is someone doing the best they can and trying to figure out even what that looks like when they are who they are and they have the family they have and their experience is different and they want different things than their family does. And I don't know. Um, she's a really exciting writer. I'm um, sold. Uh, I think a PhD student in chemistry. I don't think she's a doctor mm-hmm. herself, right? I don't remember, but she's a scientist by trade. Um, and then that lead me to another book. And I think I just got algorithmized this portrait <laughs> of a thief by Grace Liu. And the blurb was like oceans 11. 
Ooh. I was like, okay, I'm in. I'm listening. And the, the, the prompt is there is a heist where a bunch of Chinese art is stolen out of the Harvard Art Museum. And it's part of this larger conversation of like, do you really, should you really have that in your museum, Boston, Harvard? <laughs> Harvard? Shouldn't this be maybe in Shanghai or some other place? You know, it's Elgin Marble is part of that. But basically, because of who the initial point of view character is, he becomes a suspect. He's a Chinese student. Mm. He's studying art history. He was kind of around the crime at the time. And then I, I don't think it's written well enough to really recommend. Um, it's funny. There was a particular line that struck me that also then when I look back, Publishers Weekly point, I was like, this is fun, but there's some writing stuff here and I'm looking forward to the next one. But it's, I like art heist book. What can I say? It was a pretty quick read. Also appeared at the bottom of the New York Times bestseller list in hardcover front list fiction. Um, I did it on ebook. Um, that was pretty interesting too. I think that's all the things I've been reading. That's a, you've been busy. I tell um, you what, Project Frontlist has been a, a wild <laughs> success when it comes to Page Red. <laughs> Seriously, I remember reading Chemistry by Wakey Wang yeah. in one sitting, like on a Saturday afternoon, and being mm-hmm. like, "This is a voice I want to hear more of." So I'm really excited to yeah to pick up yeah. Jonah's okay, and I think I might have to look at Portrait of a Thief. You know, I I also get, read a sample on your Kindle. Get for the yeah. first couple of chapters if you're in you're in if you're out you're out like i've said this before to a friend recently there are two kinds of books to me now there's books i'm into and not into those are the only two those are only two kinds of books that i care about and sometimes i'll get through a book i'm not into for reasons but i'm Mm -hmm. really trying to abandon stuff i'm not into there's too many books i can get into um to to waste not waste time but to like that's not how i use my life is too short one wild and precious 20 minutes between feeding the kids and my call starting Yes. Mary Oliver would approve. Yes. Thank you much, Mary <laughs> Oliver. That's all I really need to know. You can find show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. You can email us podcast at bookriot.com. Find the Patreon, patreon.com slash bookriotpodcast. Our summer preview draft is available there. You can download it um, at the middle tier. There's some other tiers available to you. Check those out. And uh, Rebecca, will talk to you real soon. All right. Have a good one.